our music team this morning to <clears throat> each one of you for leading us into the presence of the Lord. How very, very grateful we are. Uh, just want to encourage you to come out for our Christmas caroling tonight. It's always a great time to minister to our seniors. And then there's uh, food and fellowship at the Thompsons afterwards, and it's just a wonderful time to be together with God's people. And so we will look for you this evening as we serve the Lord together and lift up the hearts of our seniors. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Psalm 24. If you need to use the Bible in the chair in front of you, it is page 862. And ask you to follow along as I read these tremendous words from the Word of God this morning. Listen to this great psalm of David, Psalm 24. Follow as I, I read. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? He is the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Now, we have been studying together these last three Sundays of Advent, the Messianic Psalms. And these are psalms that foretell the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very interesting one because it is never quoted in the New Testament and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we may say this morning, well, then, how in the world is it messianic? Well, when we look at the background of it, we might say maybe it's not a messianic psalm. Uh, the background to this psalm is 2 Samuel 7. Now, King David had uh, captured the stronghold of the Jebusites, Mount Zion, and he had made it his capital city, Jerusalem. Now he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city as God's resting place. Uh, you may remember that the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence and power of God as he rested amongst his people between the outstretched wings of the cherubim. And so David himself wanted to bring this ark to the new capital city, and he led a tremendous processional with great fanfare and worship as the ark came to its resting place. Uh, this particular painting uh, describes the scene. Uh, you may remember that David was so thrilled that he, he led the procession himself and, and he danced 
before the Lord with all of his might. Now such a celebration with such historical significance demanded a memorial. And uh, just as the uh, Gettysburg Address uh, is a memorial to Gettysburg and the turning of the Civil War, so it is very likely that David wrote Psalm 24 to celebrate this great event symbolizing God coming to be with his people. We might ask the question then, how in the world does this refer to Christ? Well, this psalm is an Advent psalm. It celebrates God's coming to Jerusalem. Remember what the wise men said? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Remember what the angel said to Mary about Jesus? He'll be great. He'll be son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is very, very great. And this morning, as we look at this psalm, what we are going to discover is everything in it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. One thousand years before Christmas... In this psalm that David wrote to commemorate this great event, he gives to us three wonderful lessons about Jesus. And I want to ask you just a moment to bow with me in prayer as we look at the wonder of who our Savior is. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, thank you that the Word of God is eternally up to date. Thank you that the plan of God is so wonderful and so amazing that it encompasses all of history. Thank you that what we read in the New Testament is revealed to us in the Old Testament so that Christ becomes the central figure of all history. And what a joy for us today to look into your word and to see who he is and then know that he is our wonderful Savior, King, and Lord. So we love you today. Take the things of Christ now. Show them to us that we may adore him and be like him. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want you to notice the first lesson we learn about Christ in this psalm is that Jesus is the creator who owns everything and everyone. Now in verse 1 it tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is the strongest way to say the Lord is totally sovereign and he is the universal God of all. Uh, You will notice that there is a threefold description of him. Uh, In the first part of the verse, we are told that the world belongs to him, the earth is the Lord's. In the second part of the verse, we are told in everything in it. That's a reference to plant, animal, and all aquatic life. And then finally, at the end of verse 1, we are told, the world and all who live in it, all human life. Now, do you notice here, this is an outline of Genesis chapter 1. Did you notice that? What is created first? The earth. What is created second? All non-human life, plants, animals, and the fish. And then finally, 
uh, human life is created on the crowning day of creation. So David is giving to us an outline of Genesis chapter 1 in this opening verse. And he is giving a very strong message to the Jews that God was not a God who was exclusive or nationalistic, who was limited to them. See, in David's day, uh, Israel was surrounded by all kinds of nations who had their own gods. Uh, Here's an ancient map with a number of these nations listed. And all of them had their own gods. The Canaanites, you know, had Baal. The Ammonites had Molech. The Phoenicians had Rimmon. The Babylonians had Marduk. Uh, The Philistines had Dagon. And all of these nations who had these gods, these gods were exclusive to them, and they were their own private possessions. What's interesting is all of them had stories. Stories about how their gods subdued uh, hostile forces so that they could establish their kingdom. Uh, Verse 2 is really an apologetic against all the false gods of the nations. When it says about the Lord, He founded it upon the seas and He established it upon the waters. In the ancient world, the seas represented hostile powers. Evil forces that needed subduing for the God to establish his kingdom. So that, for example, Baal is depicted as overpowering these evil forces in the sea and establishing his kingdom. But did you notice here? The Lord, without any battle whatsoever, divides the waters from the dry land What David is saying about God is he is the true creator. In fact, it's interesting to notice the differences that God revealed about himself versus what these neighboring nations taught about their gods. Notice the self-revelation of God to Israel and how different it was from Israel's neighbors. God revealed there's one God. But they had many, many gods. God brought order to the chaos without any difficulty whatsoever, Genesis 1. Their gods brought order to the chaos through fear, murder, and great struggle. And then God, he created the cosmos out of nothing. But their gods created the cosmos out of the leftovers from this struggle. Now, as we begin to look at all of this, it's not hard for us to see that Jesus is the creator, isn't it? It's not hard. Genesis 1-3, all things were made by him, and without him, how much was made that was made? Nothing. Colossians 1-16, The Bible tells us that all things were created by him, whether in the heavens or on the earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were made by him and for him. So the Bible tells us that this great creator that we see here is none other than Jesus. 
Now we can begin to see why Jesus deserves the worship of everyone in the world. Do you know the Hebrew word for worship is a very interesting word? It means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, or to submit and surrender. That's what worship is. Now, I don't know about you, but the only one who is worthy of that kind of worship has to be the Creator. That's the only one who can be worthy of that kind of worship, the one who is Creator over all. Do you remember my skeptic friend that I mentioned a a few weeks ago who said that he doesn't like Christianity because Christianity is prejudiced against other religions. And, And he said, I believe that God and Christ are in all religions. I want you to think with me for just a moment on that. If God and Christ are in all religions, then what that means is all religions are equal. If all religions are equal, then Jesus is not exclusive and above them all as the Creator. If that is true, then Jesus is not worthy of submitting and surrendering to in worship because he is just one amongst equals. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says he is creator. And he proved that he was creator when he performed miracles that only the creator could do So Psalm 24 is talking about Christ. Many years ago, I was at a uh, funeral, very, very large funeral. It gathered uh, national recognition because it was a funeral of a missionary who had been killed on the mission field in South America. I don't remember all the things that the pastor said in that funeral sermon, but I remember one thing he said. He said this, We do not say Jesus is the only way because we're bigots. We say he's the only way because it's true. And that's absolutely right. Jesus is the creator who owns everything and everyone. I want you to notice there's another lesson in this uh, psalm. Second lesson is Jesus is the Savior who qualifies us for worship. Notice verse 3, he says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? Now once the Ark of the Covenant came to Jerusalem, uh, it became the Lord's hill. So Mount Zion became the Lord's hill. Now because God is a holy God, Holiness is required of those who worship him. So the issue here in verse 3 when he says, who may stand in his holy place, is who is qualified to come and stand and worship such a God? Did you notice the answer given in verse 4? Is a daunting answer. Did you notice that? Look at it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, or swear by what is false, again the NIV text note here says, 
or swear falsely, that is probably the better idea. What this is referring to is our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to God, and our relationship to one another. And notice what it says are the requirements if we are to come and worship this holy God. Uh, Notice our personal life. We have to have clean hands. It means that we are living a clean moral life. And I can just imagine someone here this morning saying, well, I've done pretty well in that area. Most of my life I've lived a moral life. But then look at the next part. We have to have pure thoughts, a pure heart. That means to be pure in our thoughts and in our motives. You know what? Proverbs 16.2 calls us all up a little bit short here. Uh, This is what Proverbs 16.2 says. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Wow. And then look at the second part of the verse who does not lift up his soul to an idol, this means uh, we are not to break the first command to have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. Now all of us know idols can be gods of pleasure, gods of money, gods of ambition, of power, and selfishness. In fact, the phrase here, to lift up, means to have a very strong desire, it means to long for. Uh, Who of us can here today say that we have never had strong, selfish desires that have come ahead of our love for God? And then look at the last one. Verse 4 is talking about never being deceitful to other people or swears falsely. The word falsely there has the idea of deceitfully. So here he's talking about not breaking the ninth command, which says that we should never bear false witness. Do you know, I used to think that I had this one really down in my life. I used to think that I was honest through and through, You could never find a more honest person than I was. And then as I was studying God's Word, um, I discovered there are 17 different ways that we can lie. Remember that from the Ninth Commandment? And then I had to remember. Oh, yeah. There was one day in which I wanted to accomplish something without hurting anyone's feelings. And I told a half-truth to one person and another half-truth to another person. And what I was really doing was manipulating them. And then when I was confronted about it, I didn't want to believe that that was true of me. And and I thought, I'm honest, John, certainly I, I haven't done this. And so I denied it. You know, denial is a form of lying. Yeah. And finally, the Lord won out, and I had to admit that I had been deceitful. 
And I want to tell you how painful that was. Here, I thought this was an area of my life that I was very, very strong in. And I had sinned against God and against other people. That was a very humbling experience. You know what Pastor Warren Wearsby said about these standards here in verse 4? Nobody on God's earth is able to meet these standards. Can I say this morning, yea, verily? Yea, verily? If you have never been humbled underneath this book, you haven't read it very deeply. Because when you see the standards of a holy God, what it requires for us to come into His presence, you have to say, Pastor Wearsby is right. Nobody on God's earth is able to meet these standards except who? Yes, Jesus. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. And He was... Perfectly pure, wasn't he? He said, I always do those things which please my father. He never lifted up his soul to an idol. And he said, I am the truth. He had never deceived anyone. Isn't this a perfect portrait of the sinless life of Christ? Isn't it? Listen to these words in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read them for you because they are so wonderful for us this morning. Listen to these words. Here I am, says Jesus. I have come to do your will. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, because he met this perfect standard here in Psalm 24, verse 4, he then was able to die for us, rise again for us. He can save us. And now in Hebrews we are told he can sanctify us so that we can approach this holy God. Is this not Jesus Christ who is being revealed here this morning? Yes, it is. You know, one of the questions that people often ask is, is the method of salvation the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament? Did you see right here in Psalm 24, this is not only a portrait of Christ, but he's also called the Savior. Look at verse 5. It says, he will receive blessing from the Lord, talking about the person of verse 5, and vindication from God his Savior. Now here's a very wonderful thing. If we take verses 6, 5, and 4 and work backward, you know what we discover? We discover the plan of salvation. So if someone were to come and say, um, in the Bible... 
Is salvation in the Old Testament different than it is in the New Testament? The answer is they are exactly the same. Let's just look at this together for just a moment. Uh, Notice in verse 6, we must have a seeking heart. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Now these verbs for seek describe people who are diligent worshipers of God. They want to know him. They want to have a personal relationship with him. They want to honor him, and so they diligently seek him. Is that why you're here today? Because you have a seeking heart. Notice, secondly, in this plan of salvation, we must receive his righteousness as a gift In verse 5, it says that we will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, who is the Savior. Now, vindication is a very interesting Hebrew word. It is the word for righteousness. And when a person is vindicated, they are declared not guilty. So, do you know what this is? This is the doctrine of justification by faith that brings salvation right here in the middle of the Old Testament. What does Jesus do? He exchanges his sin for our righteousness and he vindicates us before God. This is Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then notice, thirdly, we must be cleansed by him morally and spiritually. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Do you see the very thing that we lack, Jesus came to give us? The very thing that we need, he came to give us when he forgives us, And then comes into our lives to work within us to make make us like himself. So Psalm 24 is telling us Jesus not only meets the standard, but he meets it for all who trust and receive him. I love this image right here that explains it so very, very well. This image tells us how salvation works in both Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, as they brought the animal sacrifices, those sacrifices told them they needed a Savior, and psalms like this told them that that Savior would be Christ who would be coming. So in the Old Testament, by faith, they looked forward to the Savior. But now in the New Testament, since he's come, we look back. And in the cross and the resurrection, we find the same salvation by faith in the one who has come. But notice the key to all of it is whether old or new, Jesus Christ in both is the Savior of all. In fact, remember what the angel said to Joseph, you will call him Jesus, which means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. 
wow, how wonderful this is. Jesus is the Savior who qualifies us for worship. Now, if this were not enough, uh, uh, notice finally in this psalm, Jesus is the king who deserves to take his throne. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift up, O you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Well, he's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? He's the Lord Almighty. The Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. During the Babylonian captivity, one of the things the Jews discovered was that the Babylonians would dedicate each day of the week to one of their gods. And so the Jews, surrounded by this paganism and idolatry, decided what we will do is we will also dedicate each day of the week to our God and we will choose a special psalm for each day of the week. The very first day of the week, they chose Psalm 24 for that day. So Psalm 24 was assigned to Sunday. You remember what happened on Palm Sunday of Holy Week? You remember that Jesus came riding in on a foal, the colt of a donkey. And while he rode in, the crowds hailed him as the coming king. That morning in the temple, as the chief priests led in worship, they recited Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? He is the Lord Sabaoth. He is the King of glory. The very morning Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, the chief priests were reciting this psalm. Uh, Friends, You can't make this stuff up, can you? This historically happened. And notice what this psalm said, three things. He's the king of glory. Five times in these verses, the only place in the whole Bible. You can't help go to Revelation and read, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the Lord, mighty in battle. You can't help but go to Colossians 2.16 and read about Jesus. He disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. And therefore, the Bible says, 
We have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Victory over sin, death, hell, and Satan. And then this very curious phrase, verse 10. He's the Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies of heaven. You can't help but go to Revelation 19 in his second coming. And that he rides on a white stallion. The armies of heaven are following him. All of us know that on Palm Sunday Jesus was rejected. While the religious leaders cited Psalm 24, they rejected Jesus as their king. During Holy Week, they debated with him. When they couldn't silence him, they plotted his death. And while the crowds welcomed him on Palm Sunday as the king, by the end of the week, they were shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. And the world has yet to own him as our rightful king. You may remember right after 9-11, there was a memorial service held in the National Cathedral in Washington to commemorate the 3,000 that were cruelly murdered on that horrible day. During that memorial service, they sang Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But they left out verse 2. It's very odd. Most of the time when you sing a, a hymn, you will leave out maybe the last verse. But you don't normally leave out the second verse. And why on that day did our nation's leaders choose to leave out the second verse of a mighty fortress is our God. Because that's the verse that tells us Jesus is the one who wins the battle. And the world will sing all about God, but as soon as it is mentioned that Jesus is that God, the world will say no. No. But Martin Luther, in that great hymn, left no doubt as to who Lord Sabaoth is. Let's not leave it out this morning. Would you join me in reading the second verse of a mighty fortress? is our God. Let's read it together. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, 
And he must win the battle. And all God's people said this morning, Amen. That's our Christ. That's our Lord. That's our Christmas. Let's bow our hearts together, shall we? Just before we close and we'll sing a final song that invites Christ to come to the throne of our hearts. I hope this Christmas season you are seeing Jesus high and lifted up. I hope that your heart is drawn to him and you are thrilled with him. As David danced with all his might because he knew the symbol of God's presence and power in the ark was coming to find its resting place amongst his people. So today we know that Jesus is that king. And if you have trusted him as Lord and Savior, he has found his resting place in your heart. And he will make of you what you could never be on your own. The unworthiness that you have before a holy God, he will forgive. And by the work of his Holy Spirit, he will conform you more and more to the image of Christ as you allow him to work in your life. What a great treasure you have in Jesus. But maybe today you're not sure that you know him. And if that's the case, I would just invite you to turn to him today. You could say something like this, Lord, my hands have not always been clean. My heart is not always pure. My selfishness has often been before me and, and you. And there have been many times that I have been less than I should have been toward others. But I thank you that Jesus came to die for me. He met the standards of God perfectly. I thank you that he rose, that I might be vindicated, justified in the very sight of God. And Lord, today, the best that I know how, I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own selfish way and I'm turning to you. Lord Jesus, my heart is open. Come in and be my Savior. Lord Jesus, the throne of my life is yours. Come in and be my Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. Grant to me life eternal. And make me a child of God. And Lord, this day, because you have said, if I will seek you with all my heart, I will find you. And you will be Savior to me. I will now follow you the rest of my life. Oh, blessed Lord, draw us now to yourself and save those who are yet needing 
the assurance of their salvation. And then for those of us who know Christ and glory in Him, may we leave this service today rejoicing, filled to uh, the brim with the glory and greatness of Christ. May we live for Him and extend Him to all around us. We praise His wonderful name. And all of God's people said together,